Ortega. Who are you supposed to be? Well, I'm Incrediboy. What? No. You're that kid from the fan club. Frankie, Mikey, Braddy. That's it. Braddy. My name is Incrediboy. I've been nice. I've stood for photos. I've signed every scrap of paper you pushed on me. But this... Oh, no, you don't have to worry about training me. I know all your moves, your crime-fighting style, favorite catchphrases, everything! I'm your number one fan! <laughs> Hi, this is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast, with my co-host, Frank Santopadre. Hey guys, Frank here, and we hope you enjoyed last week's part one of our very in-depth interview with director Brad Bird and composer Michael Giacchino. We know you did. So here is part two. It's chock full of goodies. Brad talks about the experience of making the wonderful Iron Giant, one of the best films of the 90s. And Michael talks about some classic Planet of the Apes music from the 60s and unveils some strange instruments that were used in the making of that soundtrack. And Michael even takes some music cues from Gilbert, if you can believe that. So, without further ado, part two of our terrific interview with Brad Bird and Michael Cicchino. Enjoy. Here's a question from a fan for you guys. The, given that the Incredible movies, this is from Jeffrey Westoff, given that the Incredible movies have a ton of Bond homages in both story and score, obvious question, would Brad and Michael like to work on a Bond film? I feel like we already made our version of a Bond movie. Twice. Three times. Twice. Yeah. Three, times. Three times. Right, right. right. Go, right. Protocol, protocol, too. Yeah. yeah. Right, right. Um, yeah, uh, yeah good, that's, good that's I mean, look, answer. I, I, I love James Bond. I love those movies, uh, but I feel like we did our version of it. We did our thing, and I'm happy with that. Yeah, um, it, it's basically that, um, uh, you know, Bond is not the... When we talked about it, we talked about Bond, but we also talked about... The Man from Uncle, Mission mm -hmm. Impossible. You know, there were a ton of spy movies. The Secret Agent Man, you know, Secret Agent Man. That's a great one. I mean, it was, yeah. the, you know, there was a lot of that in the early 60s. And um, for me, it filled the space that superheroes were trying to fill. In other words, Superman had was in reruns when I was a kid. And, um, you know, I loved it, but, you know, George Reeves was a little tubby and he, you know, he was obviously <laughs> yeah. going off of a springboard. And then Batman came on and it was campy, campy camp. And Adam West also, you know, was, you know, yeah. not not able to. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was not convincing. And the Bond movies were over the top. They were they had crazy villains. You know, you had a guy throwing his top hat with a razor on it, you know. I mean, they were <laughs> crazy. They were just as stylized as Batman and Superman, but they were a lot more believable. And so for me, and my parents were cool. They allowed me to see those movies when they were rated M, you know, uh, for mature. And I was not mature. They, they allowed me to see those. And um, they filled that space for me. So when I think, when I was imagining a superhero movie, I went back to what I thought was cool when I was a kid. And there, it was a lot of the spy films. I loved all those spy films and spy TV shows and spy music and, 
you know, so the, bon- the uh, Bond knockoffs too, the Matt Helm stuff, and uh, yeah, it's still yeah. you know in like Flint, yeah, you know, the, has Flint, some yeah, Flint pictures, Jerry really Goldsmith, really yeah, cool. and, Jerry, and yeah. a great, yeah. a yeah, great yeah. Bond knockoff is uh, the Get Smart theme, yeah, right, which yeah. is also a great piece of music. Written by Bill Dane, his brother, Gilbert. Well, it was, and it was just all over television at the time. It was amazing. Like you couldn't, you know, turn, turn the channel without hearing something great. Yeah. Uh, So, and also Henry Mancini was a massive, you know, influence, I would say, even for, for me on, on the Incredibles as well. Huge. You know, all of that. Peter Gunn. So, yeah. I mean, I still have the Peter Gunn soundtrack that my dad gave me. My dad bought it in the PX in Germany when he was in the army. And, uh, and he, you know, that was one of the things he bought there and, and he's, it was always in our basement. And I have that record, which I, I, I must've wore out the grooves on it. I loved it so much. I love what you did with Speed Racer too. Oh yeah, man. man. I, that love, was great. I love that. Speed I love the movie and I love the soundtrack. Me too. So bravo. The movie, the movie gets lambasted got balls. Un- unfairly, but I feel like it's so ahead of its time it's, in so many ways. It's a fever well, dream. The, and it's, the thing is, is that people don't realize they like I could see some movie executive going, yeah, that was a really popular show, Speed Racer, but we'll get the Wachowskis, so it'll be like The Matrix. And the thing yeah. is, is the Wachowskis actually knew the show. Yeah, and it shows. And they, yeah, their whole mindset, as far as I could tell, was, you know, you sit down with a big bowl of uh, uh, cereal that has got about two days worth of sugar in it. And you power down three or four bowls of that stuff and you watch Speed Racer, your heart is racing before the episode even starts. Yep. And that kind of manic thing is what it is. So when yeah. they did it at Mach 5, you know, and, and over the top and the colors are over the top and the, you know, the music is over the top. I mean, that's the perfect version of Speed Racer to me. I agree. me what drives me nuts is when they're doing a movie of an old tv show or a new version of the tv show and they figure the way to modernize it is to take the theme music and put in a rap section right yeah well (laughs) yes that's that's about that's about selling records right or just or you know or uh well, yeah, that's a big part of it for sure. I tried to get Brad to put more rap music into Ratatouille, but he just didn't want to. Do <laughs> he, it. he wanted to call it Ratatouille. I was like, "Come on, the the kids will love it." Rap, 
Rapatui. Rapatui. <laughs> yeah. Mike, and I said, come on. <laughs> Mike, you know Lalo Schifrin, and he's and he's still around. Yes, he's still with well. us. God bless him. When you're yeah. when you're doing your homage, when you're doing your version of the Mission Impossible theme, I, I, and I'm not even sure how to how to put this question together. Uh, you, you know, how much license do you feel comfortable taking? And did he ever get in touch? Have you guys ever have a conversation about it? Well, when I was hired for um, Mission Impossible Three, which was directed by J.J. Abrams, I which is a film I almost didn't get because I hadn't done a movie yet. You know, I was just, Incredibles was just about to come out. Uh But to Paula Wagner and Tom Cruise, I was still just a TV composer, you know? And I think that they were at the time thinking about going with someone a little bit more established. I won't name names, but, you know, that was the feeling. And I remember JJ having these conversations with me going, I I don't know, I'm, I'm pushing and doing what I can but I'm not sure how this is going to go. And then The Incredibles came out and uh, that sealed the deal. That was it. And then Tom, Tom loved the movie and he was just like, yes, okay, you can have your guy, you know? Uh, so thank you for that, Brad. And, uh, and, and, and then when it came to working on Mission Impossible, I, I was so nervous about what to do, exactly what you're talking about. Like I, I didn't know what I, how much I could change it, what I could do. That's what I mean, yeah. I was very nervous about it because I- Tribute and homage. Yes, and I idolized Lalo, you know? All the ones that weren't Ghost Protocol had a very shortened uh, title sequence too. They were very yeah. short. Uh, and yep. the, the first film with Danny Elfman doing that theme is literally like 10 seconds. It's like, Dum dum dum, yeah, you know. Yeah, and well, we had like, fun with it. And on on the one that uh, we did together, I wanted to pay tribute to the opening titles of Mission Impossible, Good where they you. show bits yeah. of the episode to come under the fuse and do a modern update of that. And so Michael had a lot more screen time because we did all of the main credits uh, yeah, under that. Yeah, we had that. a blast. And he just went to town. But prior to that, on the first one, so what I did was I I called up Lalo Schifrin. You know, I had never met him and I didn't know, but I got his phone number. I called him and I was like, hey, Lalo, my name is Michael Giacchino. I'm going to be working on Mission Impossible. Would you mind talking about a few things? I have some questions. And he said, well, why don't we meet for lunch? So we met at this Italian restaurant uh, in Beverly Hills. And I remember I felt I was so nervous. I felt like I was about to ask him if I could marry his daughter or something because I didn't want to <laughs> like ruin the whole the whole thing. But I'll never forget. I was like, all right, basically what I really need to know is like, what should I do? What shouldn't I do? Uh, how, how, wh- you know, what are my parameters? What's the roadmap? And he, and he looked at me like I was crazy and he goes, just have fun with it. Do whatever you want with it. Go have fun. No zither. Stretch it, you know, squash it. No just, zither. Just go do it. <laughs> yeah. <no. laughs> and I remember him after hearing that, I felt such a sense of relief. And and I, I I just went bananas with it. I had I had a blast. It's really one of the most fun themes you could ever be blessed with working you with. Guys well, are, you, you guys are smart you, to you, know you, that it brings you right into the movie. Yeah. Well, you know? and also, Jacino an G- took cues from other cues that Schifrin had done for that show. Yeah. The plot. He, we, he, you know, he, yeah. he did it uh, 
the greatest homage because these little melodies would trickle in every now and then that kind of reminded you of the the show. And it was this great sort of scenting uh, that he did on the movie that I thought was great. Okay, wait, I just got an email from Frank Marshall. And he said, <laughs> indeed, he said, indeed, he was. And he was also in the army band with John Williams. How about wow. that? So, so that, that Rockin' Munsters theme was written was so, written by your your friend's dad. That is craziness. Wow. There you go. I've accomplished nothing else today, Michael. That's amazing. That's awesome. Well, now, now I got to get in deeper with him about uh, John Williams being in the, you know, in the army band with his dad. I want to know more about that. Yeah. Tell me about them catching the clap. Did they ever? (laughs) (laughs) Another composer that I grew up with because I was a monster kid. And that was uh, Hans J. Salter. Do you know anything about him? I know he, you know, the Wolfman thing. The Wolfman. He, he did a lot of the Universal stuff, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, he did all the Universal stuff. The early I mean, days of film composing. I don't know a lot about him personally, other than, you know, what he's done and, and, and there. Uh, I don't know. We should do a, a show on him. Let's do one where we just talk about him. Let's do a deep dive. I would, I would love that. I just remember the Wolfman was... Well, those were movies that were not afraid to be movies. I feel like nowadays there's so many films that are made that are afraid to be movies, you know, afraid to just be out there and be entertaining. Everything has to be restrained and and held back. And in many cases, they're afraid for it to feel too emotional or too this or too that. You know, uh, the audience has gotten so powerful in terms of uh, putting the studio on edge and on guard at every little move, you know? Uh, but it puts management on guard. It doesn't put artists on guard. No, I don't no, think. it doesn't. But a lot of times the artists are sort of held back. Prisoners of management, yeah. Yes, yeah. Brad, here's one for you from Andrew LaPosha. Can Mr. Bird tell us about how he ended up being the voice of Edna, Edna Mode in The Incredibles? And a, and I can't and I can't imagine anyone better. By the way, well, thanks. Uh, the short version of the story is I was cheap and available. You know? uh, <laughs> uh, I actually I had somebody that I wanted this wonderful. Well, I think the secret is out now, so I can say it. Um, is Lily Tomlin? I I wanted, and uh, I met with her. My producer John Walker and I met with her down in L.A. And I, uh, I showed her pictures of the character and I talked about the character. And as I was talking, I kind of did a little bit of the voice. And she said, that's interesting. And then she said, 
would you mind just recording all of the part, you know, because she's only in a couple of scenes, just record it into this recorder and leave it with me. And so I'm sitting there and I'm like, well, uh, yeah, I guess I can do that. And so she leaves and I'm there with John Walker and he's reading the other characters and I'm reading Edna and I'm looking at him like, what are we doing? You know, <laughs> like she doesn't, does she want to do this or, or, you know, so we, we do it and she's very nice and she sends uh, me on my way and she says, um, I'll, I'm going to listen to this over the weekend and, and I'll have something for you by next week and we can talk about it. And I went, okay, great. And so I left and, and I talked to her and she said, you know, uh, I, I tried, um, you know, kind of getting what, what you have and I, I can't quite get it as, I don't, th I don't think it's as good as what you do. Um, you know, I, I really think, you know, you should consider doing it. And about the same time I had an internal screening of the story reels of the movie where, where you have temp temporary voices, just people that work on the movie or are the voices. And it's just to get kind of a generalized timing and, and kind of be able to present the movie in a, in a crude form. And, uh, the, after the screening, uh, Andrew Stanton and John, uh, Lassiter both said, you, you should do the voice. And so I was just like, well, you know, I'm available. <laughs> I'm not going anywhere. So what the hell? So I did it. Um, but it really happened by accident. I wasn't intending to be in the movie at all. And when you're in the park and you see the giant Edna Mode walking around, is, does it does it, <laughs> does it play with your mind? <laughs> well, yeah, I actually worked on that. You know, they, oh, you they brought they brought the character up and wanted notes, you know, because, yeah. So I, I love it. So. Yeah, it's really strange, you know. Can can you do some of the voice for us now? All right. All right. <laughs> well, I don't know. What do you want me to say, darling? I, I it's I don't do these types of shows, you know. I look. I wait for the more prestigious offers that never seem to come. <laughs> it it sounds a little like Zsa Zsa Gabor. It is. It's like Zsa Zsa Gabor and Maria Uspenskaya had a child. Uh, what's the woman in from Russia with love? Too? Oh, uh, Lottie Lenya. Yeah, Lottie yeah, Lenya right. reminds me of too. Fantastic. A bit. Let's let's plug something worth very worthy, and that is uh, uh, speaking of of animation and animated films deserving a lot of respect, and that's the Iron Giant. And I want to bring up, I want to bring up Anthony, Michael, your brother, Anthony's great documentary. He's around here somewhere. He's which, I, which I watched. Staying. Oh, and congratulations. He's to spooning him. his Oscar. He's, yeah, he's in the other room spooning his <laughs> yes, Oscar. He just, he just won an Oscar for Colette. But we, but, but uh, the Iron Giant doc, which is on the Blu-ray, is just uh, wonderful. Yeah. Uh, I agree. And, he did and, a great job. He did a great job. It's wonderful and it's heartbreaking too. That is particularly when you're t telling the story of how you went to the multiplex oh, and the stand. Yeah. He had the broken leg <laughs> and the and... all true. I mean, what a terrific film, Brad. Well, thank you very much. It, it was uh, the best of times. It was the worst of times. You know? <laughs> but it ended up being happy because we got to make the movie that we wanted to make, which. Uh, you know, it was kind of a fluke, but uh, I'm really happy that we made it.
It's a masterpiece. And you can't you can't dislike any movie that references Mad Magazine, Will Eisner, and Zeppo. And Zeppo. That's the first. And actually, when Brad was just here a couple of weeks ago, and uh, which was really great because we hadn't seen each other in so long. Oh, that's nice. Working working Uh, on said musical. Working on said musical. So, but one of the things I asked him about was the scene. He he, you know he animated one of the scenes in Iron Giant, and it is the scene where Hogarth uh, is given coffee. And if take a moment and just Google Hogarth Coffee Iron Giant, watch the scene, because I have to say, I think it's brilliant and it's beautifully animated. And it's just, you know, we don't get to see you do that that often. And so that is a great sort of little uh, time capsule of what uh, you can well, do. Well, you're, you're very kind. It was a very stupid thing for me to do while I was trying to make the movie. So It's so good. Uh, because it was, you know, it was one of those high-maintenance scenes. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast after this. I think it was also uh, admirable of you to not throw Warner Brothers under the bus in interviews that you've given and say that you, you know, you, you were, you were impressed. I made some big mistakes too. Well, that you made mistakes, but that they were courageous enough to make the movie in the first place. That's right. And run from the room when they heard your, your, your rather unusual pitch. Right. That they actually embraced the rather unusual pitch, which was very cool of them. But they, they were kind of, um, you know, they were live action guys and they they thought that that was a a, a cool twist. So they did they didn't approach it. Um, they didn't approach it like a lot of people approach animation. They just looked at it as a story. And that's uh, that's how it should be approached. Mm-hmm. And, you know, animation is just a method. Here's something I ask film. every every songwriter and composer who comes on the show uh, where does music come from? Mm. That I, I'm still trying to figure it out, you know, but I'll tell you this. This is what usually happens. Uh, when men and women get together, <laughs> and they have man, special feelings. A man loves a woman <laughs> after they're married. Uh, <laughs> no, what happens is I, I, I for me, I need to watch the movie. Say if, if we're talking about a movie, all right, we could talk about a couple different versions of this, but it's, it's a movie. And I really take in the story and I track how, I, how it's making me feel. I really try to understand what the characters are going through. And I really, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough thing because you have to engage your emotions. You're not just making things up. That's, you know, I don't like to just make things up when I'm writing. I want them to feel like they came from someplace real. So it's really digging into the movie, no matter what movie it is, and under, and trying to put yourself in the shoes of those characters and go, how would I feel if that happened to me? How would that? How would I feel? And from that, I'm able to write something. You know. Yeah, composers, uh, I think, are kind of like uh, actors of the story, not one particular part, but of the story. They're like yeah. actors giving a performance of the totality of the story. And uh, that's what they remind me of, you know, at their, especially at their best, because they're performing an aspect of the movie that is unique to, to them. And, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's hard to, when, when it's done well, it's, it's hard to separate it from the movie. I mean, I, you think of The Godfather, you're right there with, I mean, yeah. yeah. 
or or you mentioned the zither before in the third yeah that's man. right yeah yeah no <laughs> yeah. so it is one of those things it is like being an actor i always do think about it in that that in those terms so if you do it right you're exhausted by the end of the day <laughs> i'm sure and i always forget what was that uh that the uh beach boys used and it was used oh, in the theremin? all of the yes the theremin, it was used yeah. in all the 50s science fiction. Films. Oh, yeah, it's so great. Uh, the theremin and, uh, well, it, you know, most famously by Bernard Herrmann in uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still, which is yeah, incredible. Right. Big influence on Iron Giant, Yeah, too. I was just going to say that. Yeah. yeah. I, I love your little homages. I, I, j I love that instrument. I have that. I actually played it on Super 8, the movie Super 8. Uh, so there's a, we, there's a portion of the movie where it's showing the movies that the kids made. And we did a lot of like sort of stock music, what we would consider stock music. And I got to play the theremin on it. Which Michael has a, a guy that has the most exotic. Un well, I don't think he's he's left. He's, us, not, right? he's no longer with us. Yeah. Emil Richards is one of the greatest sort of percussionists ever. But he had a giant truck like full of these crazy instruments that, that were from all over the place. Emil, he was a percussionist. He played with everybody. He was, you know, best friends with George Harrison. He's so in terms of music, he played every style of music. And he came in, I think it must have been in the late sixties, early seventies into Hollywood and became a studio session player and just can do could do anything, could do anything. But along the way, all along his travels, all the concerts, all the shows he did over the years, he would collect anything that he would knock up against and would make a sound. He would be like, I, 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 actually, I have something I'll show you. <laughs> Michael has gotten out of the chair and he's walking to his trophy case. <laughs> I'm, gonna do, I'm gonna do play by play here. His, okay, his so. eerie Silence of the Lambs lit uh, Yes, it is, a little, it is a little eerie. What do you what do you see here? It looks like a it looks like a pasta bowl, a metal pasta bowl. Yeah, it's a just a metal bowl. metal Mixi mixing, mixing bowl. Mixing bowl so, excuse me. So when I was doing Planet of the Apes, uh, you know, Emil came over to me, and and I knew this. Emil said, you know, I uh, played on Jerry Goldsmith, the original Planet of the Apes. You know, and I was like, yeah, I know that Emil. And he goes, well, I still have some of the instruments. Would you would you want them? Would you want to use them? I'm like, uh, yes. What do you have? So he hands me a stack of these, right? And this one in particular was his favorite, he told me. Uh, and he, I said, what are, what, is, what, are, what are you giving me, mixing bowls? And he said, he, and he told me this story about how he was in a hardware store one day. And Jerry, he was trying to figure out what he was gonna use for the movie and do something, because he was always trying to deliver some weird, interesting sound that would help Jerry with his scores. So he, uh, he said he knocked over a stack of mixing bowls by accident as he's like looking around and they made this horrible clanging sound and he and he picked one of them up and there was some other thing there and he just started banging on it and this mixing bowl is is used in the original planet that was used in the original planet of the apes film and he would just do it like this he'd be like you know and it gets this really weird sound to it but wow mixed in with all the other percussion stuff, it just creates such a unique identifiable signature that you're not gonna get anywhere else. And that was Emil. Emil was responsible for so many of these weird sounds. You know, this in the very beginning of E.T., there is this sound and there's no music really. It's just this, the, the logo, it says E.T., you know, and you hear this kind of a sound. Yeah, That's, it's like ambience. That is 
uh, Amel on a giant gong with a super ball. And he's rubbing, dragging a super ball against this giant metal gong and creating this weird, you know, sound. Wow. And, you know, I used to use that a lot on, I mean, he taught me so much about wow. all of this stuff. You know, some, you would think weird sounds are created by synthesizers and things like that. But he was a guy that was able to make these sounds with real things. I assume that clanging noise in Planet of the Apes was meant to to create a sense of dread. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes. When you were hitting the mixing bowl just now, I, I thought, oh, my God, I see the movie in my head. Yeah. Isn't it crazy? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. There's a lot of chaos in that sound, and he captured it so beautifully. And, uh, and of course, Jerry was one of the most inventive composers ever to live, and he was always looking for some other thing to do. That also is... is those are a couple of your best scores as well. I mean, I thought those the Michael's scores for the new Apes movies were amazing. Absolutely. I and mixed really well too in the theater. You know, they 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 really filled the theater. He's my favorite yeah. guest to do research for. <laughs> <laughs> and there's uh I always notice with like musicians who they sometimes will refer to as hack musicians, uh it's like mechanical that there are certain notes that are going to make you happy and certain yeah. notes that make you sad. Yeah, yeah. It's very strange, isn't it? Like you could sit there and go, you know, that's not a happy sound, right? No. You know, but then you... you but now play one, it on the banjo. You change one, <laughs> you change one note of that. You know, suddenly... All you're doing is changing one note. Wow. And you feel feel the difference. That's just one 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 note and it's a half step. It's it, it's you know what the notes between a note. So the note between the D and the E is the half step there. You know, and that's a, that's just a C minor chord or a C major. And then there's the chords that are like like this is one of my favorite ones. This you know uh, major 7th thing. Know? Yeah, I mean, and that's, that's a very just, specific feeling. Yeah, and you feel there's a sense of melancholy there that you you know, and then there's also the combination of chords. If you start with, and then you go to, you just change the one one thing, you know, and it's just suddenly you're like you want to you want to cry, you know. It's like this weird and and it's this power that I think no one really truly understands, <laughs> you know. We we know just enough. Well, it's purely emotional, you know. Yeah. It's it's like a language that everyone speaks. Yes. And yet it doesn't use words. But that's right. the stuff. To have it that is. come at the end of the process is scary as hell because it completely influences the experience of the movie. And if it's great, it makes it. And if it's not, it, it can just kill you. Or if he's annoying me, I can really, like, I know which buttons to push by doing something <laughs> exactly doing something yeah. wrong on the <laughs> This is just the way you like it. So if if you just wanted to pick up a check and you didn't care uh what the it, how the quality of the music you could probably write a movie theme in about like an hour, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you know, depending on yeah, you could. 
you know, but it's always much better if you actually care about it. It will actually come out better if you care about it, which is... Gilbert can't relate to caring about your work. <laughs> <laughs> that I understand. That was made painfully clear. Obviously, that's you've that's never a, seen me if you that, think I care. That's a, that's a language he understands. <laughs> but but from, the, from the audience's point of view, it's like I see a lot of these superhero films, and I can't tell you what the theme song is at all. Like, you know... Um, I mean, when when I was uh, young or, you know, or even, you know, John Williams score for Superman is yeah. super iconic. Yeah, it stays and you, with you. you think of Superman instantly when you hear that. And and Danny Elfman's uh, thing for Batman is is uh, equally memorable. You know, Michael is one of the few guys that still like has an identifiable, you know, you have a, a a melody in your mind when you think of a certain character, and and I feel like, you know, the the others are are kind of into this ambient wall of sound that that is interchangeable to me. And Michael, it's a, it's a gift. Uh, okay, uh, for this part of the movie, we're getting ready to. Uh, there's a montage of everyone working out. We get we're gonna win this big game. We're gonna win the big. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, normally you would just go use the eye of the tiger, but you know, (laughs) I I don't know. uh... And they're slathering oil on each other here. (laughs) Finding a sunlit room for the oil to reflect off of. I mean, uh, I'm trying. I, there was one of those scenes in Speed Racer when they're building the car the night before the race, and they only oh, have I like love that. six I love hours that to do it, or 36 hours, or whatever it is. It's the name of the queue, I think, 36 hours. But um, yeah, that was that. Those things are really crazy. Since we have our friend John Murray is here with his daughter Samantha Murray, and she was just asking you before we turn on the mics about up. Uh, and since we're talking about emotion, just talk a little bit about finding that the key to that score because you told uh, us about, you told us about uh, it last actually, time I, it, I did play that that chord is the key to that whole movie that's it huh yeah that's it the, the f major seventh you can go you know right off of that it tears my wife apart every time <laughs> every single time Sometimes what I'll try to do is sit down and when I sit at the piano, the first thing I'll try and do is, okay, if I had to distill this into one chord, what's it going to be, you know, Uh, and it's very difficult and it's not always achievable, but for that movie, it seemed to work for me to do that. And then, and then from there, it just, you know, melody is a very tricky thing because you want it to feel like it's something you've heard before but you also don't want it to be suddenly you're like singing some other song, you know? So it's, it's, it's this, it's a magic trick in a way it's about leading. But I think it was also very smart of you to do kind of a waltz thing because it's a dance between uh, men and women, you know, and it, it, this is really behind the love of his life. And uh, you know, even when it's used to go behind the house being lifted up into the air, the core of that moment is the relationship between him and his wife, well, you know, and who's we, no longer with us. Well, we almost messed that up, talking about how music can ruin a movie. There's an interesting, there was an interesting thing that happened in that scene when the house is, is being lifted up. 
where we knew we were going to use that theme and we were going to do it in a big, big way. And I remember Pete Doctor and I were talking about it before I started writing. And he was like, it should feel triumphant and big, like something momentous is happening. And he's going on this adventure and he's going to just take off and leave everything behind. And that was sort of the feeling. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. That That's great. the exercise montage. Yeah, basically. <laughs> so that I went and I wrote this piece of music and we recorded it. We were all so happy with it on the stage. It was big and grand and, and adventurous and all of those things. But then when we watched it in context with the movie, when we were reviewing it, uh, it felt very wrong. It felt very wrong. And it felt like we were missing and we were forgetting the most important thing of that scene, which was, you know, that this is all about his wife and yeah. his relationship with his wife. This is essentially his last dance with Ellie. Yes. You know, and 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 Pete and I both sort of sat back and were like, okay, we need to rethink this. Let's let's take another uh go at this. Let me have another go at this. And I went back and I wrote a completely it was essentially the same music, but it was much slower and much quieter. And it became more of a, a soft sort of waltz, you know, that was much more more nostalgic. It it, it 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 never let you forget what this was really about. Yeah. You know, and to see that sometimes when I do concerts, I'll play both of those back to back to kind of explain to audiences how music works and what it does and how it can change the story and and how you you can, you know, you have to be really in tune with it. But sometimes when you're working, you're going so fast, you don't, you know, you miss it. And that was one of yeah. those ones. Luckily, we were able to go back and and redo yeah, it. Yeah, he he had a moment like that in Ratatouille because oftentimes he will try out a, a theme not knowing exactly, you know, necessarily where it goes. Like, here's, here's a, a sound that this movie should have. And he recorded the version of the Ratatouille theme with the full orchestra. We had like five minutes at the end of a session and he had not recorded it yet. And he did this very lush, very romantic version of the song, and, and we had a recording of it, and it was just one take, and it was not for the film necessarily. It was to hear, to hear it with a full orchestra. And so he said afterwards, he said, you know, it's probably over the top, it's probably too romantic, but there it is, and, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll do a version that's not so romantic. And so... We finish the sessions. He does the version that's not so romantic for other parts of the movie. And it works perfectly and everything's great. And I have not come up with the idea of the review yet. Ah. And, I, and I have the idea for the review. And it seems so crazy to me that I have John uh, Lasseter and Andrew Stanton come in and I say, look, this is, I understand how these work. This is the part of the movie where you get fast and you get loud and all that stuff. And I said, but the movie seems to want to be this different thing. And I took the recording that I did a version, I did the narration, but I took that recording of the theme that I had in the bank and I put it behind me reading the words of that review and that persuaded them that it could work. And if I hadn't had the super romantic version of it, I don't know if the scene would be in the movie. And then we just used that version. Um, I think we did another take because you had some technical things you wanted to clean up. Yeah, we did. But it was look. that it was that emotional yeah. version of it is behind the review. And that was orchestrated by Jack Hayes. 
Jack Hayes was one of the great orchestrators of, of Hollywood of all time. And when we were working with him, he was in his nineties and, uh, you know, he belonged to a, an orchestration team, Leo, uh, uh, you know, Shukin and Hayes. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, I think, um, Shukin had died many years ago, but, but Jack had continued to work and, and I worked with him on, on everything that I ever did up until he actually orchestrated the married life scene. You know, I, 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 you know, wrote it and let him do the orchestrations on that. And, he was just an incredible guy who had this incredible knowledge of old school voicing, you know, old school Hollywood voicing. And that's part of the reason that, you know, I think that works so well is he had some great ideas on how to uh, deal with some of the chords and the progressions and things, which was amazing. You know, uh, I loved him. I like Brad's story because it's 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 the, the perfect marriage of the storytelling and music. I lucked out that I had that in my back pocket because if he hadn't chosen to record that, and record it with that interpretation. Or if we didn't have time or something, you know, we may not have had yeah. time, but you, we, we had the time, so we did it. Yeah, 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 right. How much time do you spend immersing yourself, Mike, in, in something like Ratatouille or Coco? You know what the assignment is, you know what the style of music is, the flavor of music. What is the homework like? And do you stop at some point because no, that's too much direct influence? Well. For me, because I'm such a nerd about these things, there isn't really homework. It's just about, you know, because I've been doing this homework for all my life. I see. I've been listening to that style of music, all the different styles that 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 make Ratatouille. Ratatouille isn't one style of music. And one of the, the great sort of directions from Brad at the time, I remember was, look, think about this score as you're in your kitchen, you got home late from work. Uh, you don't know what you're going to make for dinner. Look around, see what you got. We'll put a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this. So so for me, it was about taking like Debussy. It was taking Django Reinhardt. It was taking a little bit of Henry Mancini. It was like taking all, I, I have little bits of all this stuff. Let's see what we can make out of this. Whipping up some something delicious. You know, and, and, and that's <laughs> what Ratatouille was, was really just pulling from all the influences and things that I loved and seeing how we could all make them work the same way that a chef would would throw together a meal based on whatever you had in your kitchen you know and, and it sounds trite but that's what it was one of the things that happened on incredibles was uh we had uh, we talked with someone else uh, about uh, working on the score and it didn't work out you know he was just not uh into it and not doing what we needed and and so the word got out that I was looking for a composer and I got a deluge of CDs. And um, uh, a, a guy that was working on the film had worked with Michael and knew Michael, Teddy uh, Newton. And uh, I remembered uh, him as well. And I had CDs from Michael. And one of the things that struck me about Michael's work at that point, which was video games and television, was that it was he was a chameleon he could do mm -hmm. he did a world war ii thing and one and he did a spy thing and another and he did a romance and you know he could sound like a 30s cartoon and he you know there was nothing that was uh beyond his range and and that's one of the things that convinced me to uh you know try to work you know get him involved in in the projects were, were because he's a chameleon which is like a good actor again you know, he can play any part, you know, and and uh... it's so insane, though. It's so insane that you that I got that job. Like, I feel like, you know, looking back, you know, for a company like Disney and Pixar, Pixar, especially I had been working with Randy Newman and Thomas Newman. And then the next thing is, well, let's get this guy who has never done a movie. 
Well, there's, there's, there's your explanation for the time that went by before I called. Yes. It was, it was a controversial choice to go with someone who had not done a movie yet. Um, but everyone got persuaded. Once you play his other work, it's like it's a no-brainer. It's like, you know, he's absolutely going to kick ass. You just know it. I, I always thought it was because you had already blown the money on the last on the guy you just fired. <laughs> so they were like, well, his, this is the only one that we're going to be able to afford, you know. Here. Not at all. I just thought of another scene. The girl says to the guy, you know, you lied to me and I'm leaving. And now what is this movie? I got to know what this movie is. <laughs> it's his Yiddish porn movie. Yeah, it's a it's, Yiddish it's porn It's the Yiddish movie. porn film that he's, he's writing in his head right now. Fluffer on the roof. <laughs> after she says that to him, he's standing there in shock and sadness. You know, like there's an old, you know, if maybe he's an old detective, let's say. Let's say. He's confused. He doesn't understand why she's leaving. <laughs> you know, this is all like, what's going to happen to me? And then I think, then he looks over and he sees the knife on the on the counter. You know, and uh, <laughs> and he looks up and she's still getting her coat on. And then he's just like, oh, I'm going to grab. He slowly, his hand is slowly moving towards the knife. You know, and then he's like dragging. You can hear the knife <laughs> scraping along the uh, the counter as he's dragging it towards. Anyway, yeah, we could go on with. <laughs> and then his uncle, who's from the Yiddish theater, comes in and he's in a really good mood. <laughs> Do you have a charisma over there? <laughs> I don't have a I, I don't have the clarinet. No, I can't do that. Brad, here's my last uh, uh, listener question for you. <laughs> okay. This is from Megan Megan Reinhardt, no relation to Django. Uh, question: What is going on with Brad's 1906 earthquake film? Oh well, our, our listeners know their stuff, Brad. Yeah. Wow. Um, I still am interested in it. Um, it's a very weird project. There's a lot of misinformation about it on the internet. Um, supposedly they shut it down because we did a budget and it was so wildly out of control that they shut it down. And it's like, it never got to that point. You know, it never got to the point where we felt that we had the story. It's a very, um, specific time. It's an amazing, uh, uh, uh city at a moment in time between, the Wild West and sort mm -hmm. of a sophisticated 20th century. Um, they were still clonking people on the head and shanghaiing them for money. And uh, but they had, you know, gas lights next to electric lights and horses next to automobiles. And it was both centuries happening at once in a very corrupt uh, uh, city hall and, and uh, just wild it's a wild thing so to get that all in in a, in a movie sized box was really a tall order but i still have um i'm very interested in it michael is interested in it um it's an enormous undertaking but i think that it would be amazing if it all could come together it would I'd be great i'd love to see it you're you're not one to shy away from an ambitious project cuz just watch no, uh, as long i just as watched I drag tomorrowland that guy. again oh yeah. hey yeah, we we gave it our best shot. You you have a clarinet with you? I I don't have a clarinet. Uh, 
Nice. Do you have some other... Gilbert, like, what are you? <laughs> you have some other that. kitchen okay. utensils <laughs> that you'll... What are you, Lawrence Welk, Gilbert? <laughs> you realize that Gilbert is making a movie and he's not paying Michael. That's what's happening so, here. Oh, yeah. This is, this, is the, this is how Hollywood works. What is that? This is... Uh, I got this... You know, I, I, I worked a bit on uh, Sasha Baron Cohen's last movie. Uh, right. Poor at, poor at Two. And this, he sent me this as a thank you. Is that a uh, didgeridoo? It's no, it's like some crazy trumpet. It's thing. a didgeridoo. Don't. Okay. I don't even know how to play it. Michael is blowing a four-foot-long trumpet. Yeah, wait. Yeah, that works. It's uh, and you know the weird thing is, I just actually recorded this. I recorded this and some other instruments i had to make a new instrument for wow. jurassic world which we just finished See, it but uh, it sounds like a i i was gonna say it sounds like a dinosaur yeah it, it works out great except the way i used it i recorded it pitched it down it becomes more of an effect it's like a weird thing anyway. See, here's what i was gonna ask it's for. not a clarinet sorry here's what Gil <laughs> gilbert's project involves a dinosaur and I know, yiddish this porn. is the Yiddish porn. We're, we're heading down this Yiddish porn thing again. Does he have right, a he's getting, He's I, getting you ambition now. I I want music. I don't know if you could do it if without a clarinet. I need music for a Jewish spy movie. Oh. A Jewish spy movie? Yes. Wow. Yeah, that I don't know if I can do at this very second, well, but maybe I can... fuck th are you on the show? I can show? throw something for you and I'll get it to you. You know? Oh, my God. I'm trying to think. I have the Yiddish stuff, but... My, my fantasy is to hear you do a version, a variation, or an adaptation of Billy May's Green Hornet theme. Oh, my God. You know, uh, one of my favorite versions of that theme was recorded by Al Hurt. Yeah, Al Hurt. Uh, you know, yes. and 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 it's the, on the trumpet. Oh my God, it is like one of the best versions. And actually, that was a big influence for me for on the Incredibles as well. And in particular for the scene where Dash figures out that he can run on water. Right. You know, and I just remember the energy of that tune and that and that theme, and especially Al's playing. I was like, I want it to feel like that. And I, and when so those really crazy uh jazz voicings in the horns they're all from that uh, that version of the you know inspired by that version of uh the green hornet theme What was funny yeah. is that the uh, the horn section was exhausted after that take. They were like on the floor by true? the last wow. note. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And yeah. in fact, I get rough recordings, you know, uh, uh, like a day or two after the recording session. And what cracked me up is they have all the sound of the conductor going, you know, okay, you know, tacit this, okay, da 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 da, let's go. And And right after that, take was finished with that piece you could hear a couple of the horn guys go ah, 
like that. And I always connected that. I always hear it when I hear this thing, even though they clip it off, of course. You know, that that is the true version of that cue is the, oh, yeah, it's true. At the end of it, because we exhausted them. to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast. But first, a word from our sponsor. Gil, I've got I've got one question for each of these boys before we let them get back to their lives. Unless you want uh unless you want uh, Mike to pull yeah. out a flugelhorn. Yeah. Unless we're still in and development a, on your film. Yeah, and a I want if I were a rich man, but in a in a horror film. <laughs> <laughs> It, make it if I were in Richmond, because <laughs> it's kind of you know, a little sketchy. In Richmond. Yeah, if I were in Richmond. Uh, if I were a rich man. <laughs> I think you would just have to do this. Yeah, the dama, dama, ho, 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 yeah, you can do this. We have to get you to sing it though, Gilbert. I mean, we'd have to do that. Yes. I know. I think it, we could. Yeah, you could do it. You, if you want to hear Gilbert yeah, sing, rent, rent Aladdin too. If I were a rich man, I think that's like the Flintstones version of Yabba Dabba Do. Yeah. Or as Brad said before, Yabba Dabba Don't. <laughs> one for you, Mike. One last one for you from Charlie Bruce. Uh, Michael's work on Lost was phenomenal. You brought me to tears so many times, especially with the death scenes of Charlie and then Son and Jin. Uh, uh, any any one quick memory from Lost? And our friend Josh Chambers adds, uh, if you if you revisit Lost, could Gilbert possibly get slipped into the Dharma Project's original design team? <laughs> <laughs> I'll just say yes to that. Uh, okay. Uh, As the designer of the canned goods. <laughs> yeah, you'd be great. <laughs> yeah, that's what he's talking. That's the crying. That's a. Anyway. Beautiful. Uh, beautiful. Is it? What's the question though? Oh, uh, just one, one, one quick memory of Lost. It could, oh, it could be short. Um, you know, I have a, I have so many memories of that, but I remember one of the biggest ones was like wherever all of us and I have I have such good friends that I've made from that show. Uh, a lot of times you do these things and you move on and you don't see these people again. But the cast and crew I've remained close with, and uh, and it's great. You to still them, do concerts? Remember, yeah, we still do lost concerts, and 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 if any of the cast is available, they come and we hang out, and it's a great way to just kind of reconnect with all the fans and. Um, but I do remember watching the finale together with the whole cast. We were all together watching it. And it was one of the most emotional experiences that I've ever experienced because 
you know, you do something for, for that many seasons uh, together and you will really are a family and that show in particular, everyone was a family. So I, you know, and, and there are people who complain about the ending and this and that I personally absolutely love the ending. I, I, I feel like if life were really like that, why wouldn't you want that? You know, uh, if you all end up together with the people that you sort of experience all these wonderful things with and bad things as well. But but I just I don't know. I love the movie and I loved watching it with with the people that we made it with uh, the finale, with the people that we made it with all those years. That was probably that was a great and they would always come in and guest conduct sometimes. In fact, uh, Jorge Garcia is a good friend and, and he and I for the past, I think we are now up to almost 48 weeks he played hurley for people that don't remember yeah he played hurley in the show and jorge and i every sunday with a couple other friends of ours we get on zoom for the past 48 weeks and we play a game called fireball island which is uh, an old milton bradley game from the 80s and uh so so i you know being staying in touch with these with these you I've, i've made a lot of good friends with everyone and it's just you know it's just such a special show so thankful i was involved so okay i yep. lied this one's from a friend of yours gene beretta michael having grown <laughs> up around philadelphia let's hear a little of your best philly accent <laughs> well i i'm gonna get me a, i'm gonna get a glass of water i'll get a glass of water and uh watch out for that that pile of cement uh over there that there hasn't go. tried yet so yeah oh the, the berettas you the know, beretta it, brothers you just did their podcast oh, they're the yeah i did they're the best great they're guys so much fun. great guys and we love kirk too oh yeah Gil- gilbert awesome. unless unless you want to turn into dimitri tiomkin again <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna let these uh these gentlemen have given us so much wonderful stuff i think you gotta follow up on gilbert's movie i think he yeah. needs to go all the way with it <laughs> I think what well, we could do a, like a reading of it first. We'll just do yeah. a reading, a, a yeah. Zoom reading of it once we okay, get the script in order. I'm very happy uh, because Brad wants to make my movie. Um, <laughs> oh, well, not going to happen. I will go see your movie. He'll go. He'll see it. <laughs> <laughs> Let me thank some people and we'll get out of here. Michael, thank you for being such a sport. Uh, And thank thank you both for entertaining us within an inch of our lives. Not only, not only here tonight, but for the last couple of decades. I want to thank Michael's, uh, Michael's associate, Curtis Green, who helped us get this done. We want to tell people to go see Anthony Giacchino's documentary, Colette, and also the documentary about Iron Giant, uh, which is terrific. And uh, what else is coming up? Quick plugs. Anything you want to talk about? Can you say uh, anything about Batman other than you're working on it? I saw the first 20 minutes yesterday, and it's I, I maybe that's all I'm allowed to say. <laughs> but I left very happy. Great. That's that's good enough for us. And I hope you turn out to be right about movie theaters because all of those movies that all of those ten Paul movies that Michael's working on need movie theaters. <laughs> yes. So and you know where's Gilbert's film gonna go? Right. <laughs> Well, in that theater down on Second Avenue, you yeah. can have it there. <laughs> Could you? Uh, can I hear with the porn part of my movie? Oh uh, well, that I definitely did, okay. like the wah-wah guitar thing. Oh, okay. Just, uh, but but no, then the dinosaur comes in right at the end. <laughs> <laughs> kind of ruins the feeling. <laughs> to our listeners who haven't seen the Iron Giant, please see the Iron Giant. Yes, one of the best. 
I won't say one of the best animated films ever made. I'll say one of the best films ever made. Oh, very, very kind. Absolutely. And thank you. Thank you guys for putting up with our nonsense. Oh, please. Uh, no this problem. Is, this, our, is essentially this, like a, this is essentially a conversation that Brad and I would have. So consider a therapy. This feels very normal. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Gilbert, anything else you want to torture these gentlemen with? <laughs> I know you're I know you're a sadist at heart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, couldn't we do a porn uh dinosaur? <laughs> By the way, uh, uh, Brad, how much of that stuff as a podcast? How, how much of that stuff from the cool comic book shop in in Tomorrowland did you actually get to take home from the set? Uh, not very much. Oh, that looked like a set dresser's dream. Yes, it, it was actually yes, it was fun for that reason. You know, it was it was just like uh, you know everything under the sun was in there. I have to say that Giacchino's cameo made that film for me. Yeah, See, man. This is he what has I've been whole, telling Brad. Has, speaking of stories, he, he's got a whole backstory for this character. And yeah, Mike he's Lazarus putting is his, his name. Mike Lazarus, and he's putting his life together <laughs> Mike after. Mike Lazarus. I couldn't, yeah. see, I couldn't see the Disney badge. I was wondering if it said Mike on it. Uh, yeah. I, still, I still have it. It does, actually. His, his life was going bad, and, and he's got this ride operator thing as a way to put it back together. I have it somewhere. There's a whole story. I can't, and, and I loved his cameo in uh, in Coco, too. That was a nice homage. Michael has gotten out of the chair. He's back at the scary trophy case. Michael, do you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Can <laughs> you, you can hear me? He's got it. He's bringing it. Oh, here it is. Get the horn also. It puts the lotion <laughs> in the basket. Get that dinosaur horn. <laughs> Oh, there you he's go. got the badge. Oh, Look at very that. nice. Now, can you get the fucking dinosaur? <laughs> <laughs> That's still here. Don't worry. All right. Uh, I want a romantic uh, moment between two dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually very accurate. <laughs> We could talk to you guys for hours. <laughs> thanks, thanks, thanks for doing this. Absolutely. Looking forward to doing it again one day. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. I'm Gilbert Gottfried. This has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre. And we've been talking to the very talented Brad Bird and the how the Fuck does this guy pay his rent? <laughs> Michael Giacchino. <laughs> He's got an Oscar, Gilbert. He walks in and he puts the Oscar down on the table like Shelley Winters did. Yeah, I don't get it. The I'm o- sorry. The Oscar and the and the Grammys do all his talking. Yeah. Michael, Michael, I'm sorry, I don't get it. <laughs> Thank you, boys. Thank you. Bye bye. Adventure is out there, it's heading our way. So grab your scarf and goggles, let's fly. I've mapped out our journey, we're up here to stay. Let's grab our little 